Hey, Tara. Hey, Johnny. How you doing, babe? What's it? going on? You know, yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's it. <laughs> okay, that's our intro. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Rate, review, and no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I'm just hanging out. What about you? Okay, the most dramatic moment that's happened in our home in the past, I don't know, 48 hours is we finished a epic Wizard of Oz puzzle. Yes, we're gay. And it was not an easy one. It was a really hard Wait, one. It was like uh, a thousand I'm sorry, pieces. honey. I have, to, I have to stop you. Is it 1957? What are you doing a puzzle for? Because I have time on my hands. Did you know that puzzles are like, they're as sold out as toilet paper? Did you know that? Okay. You can't get okay. a puzzle to save your life. Anyway, so we're finishing this puzzle, which we spent hours working on, days. And it was missing three fucking pieces, which is just wrong. Um, now, what was it, a puzzle am... made by Ikea? <laughs> we, th- we have a theory that Donald Trump is going into the Amazon um, warehouses and removing puzzle pieces just to piss people off. <laughs> oh, my God, that's anyway. genius. That's just the reality of where we are right now. That basically my life consists of cleaning my floors, which I'm I'm doing, uh, you know, I'm doing cleaning, clean cleaning porn. I'm putting up on Instagram, and I got to tell you, there are fetishists out there that were really into watching people clean, which is just bizarro. But um, I've gotten some very strange comments on my feed. Okay, yeah, I don't even, I, know. I don't think I even want to go into that. I wasn't even shirtless. Um, I was fully dressed. <laughs> oh oh honey, Lord! Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a new world, isn't it? It's a new yeah. world. It's a new world. Um, I I was particularly amused by your tweet the other day about uh, FaceTiming someone protocol without actually letting them know you're going to FaceTime them. <laughs> well, I mean, I come on. I, I I don't know what this new thing is where people feel like it's appropriate. It's so not appropriate. And at one point, someone FaceTimed me and I ducked like they could see me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Jesus. So, yeah, no. I, I, you, you just don't do that. And and I think I said on Facebook, I was like, it's it's the etiquette, etiquette, Jesus, etiquette equivalent oh. Of showing up to somebody's house unannounced. We don't do that. Oh people. my god! Oh my god! It's too funny. Um, did you see that that like um that meme of <laughs> that meme of that office meeting over Zoom where I guess someone didn't tell one of the guys it was happening and they caught him naked <laughs> in his room. It was classic. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there was one last week called it was. Hashtag poor Jen or poor Jennifer about a girl who literally on the Zoom call started going to the bathroom. Like, no, you have to look this up. And I don't want to further humiliate her, but what the fuck? No. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. Uh, Well, we are in a new age. Yes, we are. And we have to be very aware of that. Uh, well, I am, I'm slightly guilty of the FaceTiming, though I do tell people I'm about to call them when I do it. So it's a little different, but, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't FaceTime unannounced. I don't think that's kind to anybody. 
Uh, girl, I gotta find my right light before that shit hits me. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> oh my god, seriously, I gotta be I'm, like, I gotta be lit. <laughs> they have uh, not built that light for me yet because I'm, I'm just. There's never a time I will even because I'm, I'm trying to have a schedule. I'm trying to get up. I shower yeah. in the morning. I act like I have a life, and yeah. I. But even then, I'm. Still not looking great, you know. I'm like I, I don't. So if I've got a scheduled Zoom call, then I can go in. I can throw some makeup on, but I don't want to upset people. I don't want to scare them. It's as much for them as it is for me. I mean, the times uh, are horrifying enough. They don't need that shit. <laughs> seriously, wow. Well, um, so this is a really fun day for for me too because uh we get to talk to someone that i uh i'm very close with and i i love and uh happens to be i think probably one of the smartest men i know uh he he figured all this virus stuff out about a month ago and went into uh self-isolation so we we want to talk to him about his career and about uh politics and and about you know his self-isolation as well but uh uh we have the brilliant writer showrunner of poser and major crimes mr james duff on with us today so um i can't wait to get to that conversation i'm very excited well let's stop talking about ourselves and let's get james on how about that all right we're gonna take a little break and when we come back the one and only james duff and we're back with one of my favorite people, as I said earlier, one of the smartest people I know, though he denies being that. Um, <laughs> please welcome my dear friend, James Duff. Hi, James. Hi, y'all. Hi, James. <laughs> Great to hear your voices. Yes, it yeah, is. Well. It's good to hear you. It's a, a little so, weird being so so separated when I'm used to seeing so many people on a regular basis and being shut down and and uh, only only every now and then getting a chance to communicate with people. It's right. Well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna dive into what's happening with that right now, but in, in a minute. But I I actually wanted to start with uh, I wanted to talk to you about things that people don't know about you that are I think formative to who you are and. My sort of umbrella question to start out with is, you know, how does a boy that grew up in Texas, uh, adopted in New Orleans by wonderful parents, uh, then went through a period of being a piano prodigy, end up in New York, uh, <laughs> acting, and then become a playwright and showrunner on television? How, how the hell does that happen? I have Ellen. no idea. I have no idea that if I had, <laughs> if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I I would have said that's a fabulous story. Why don't you write it down? Uh, you know the the I I don't know as I was a prodigy. I I played fairly well and I was I was dedicated and I wanted to be a pianist. And I actually think music ended up informing my work a great deal. And I'll I'll go back to that in a minute, but I was thwarted in my attempt to make music my career. And so I, I fell back on acting and I, and I, I, in theater, because I had an interest in those things. 
And even though I'd been a writer and and had written in high school too, had been a, in the journalism class and stuff like that, it never occurred to me that writing was a particular talent. You know, and I, I guess in the same way that people who swim don't think of swimming as as a a sport, you know, like really great swimmers just feel like that's how swimming is done, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, I, um, so when I moved to New York to be an actor, I, I didn't really think about being a writer at all. It, it had not occurred to me to write plays for adults, although I'd written plays for children, but just as a part of the regional theater I belong to in Dallas. And okay. And I, I only went to New York, I think, because I wanted to see, like, if I could do something in a bigger world than Dallas. If I had... Okay, so stop, so, so stop for a second, because that, that, that's big. You went, you went to New York City. I know you, you, you've told a very funny story about, uh, to me personally, about um, uh, asking someone in New York City where, where town was, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I didn't know how to orient myself, and I'm not the only Texan who has who has found himself <laughs> suddenly in New York and and disoriented by not knowing where downtown is or where town is. <laughs> I, I was living in Manhattan, and, and, and I asked a a friend of mine. Uh, I was I was I was literally staying, I think, either on 55th or 56th Street with a friend of mine uh, who was already working in New York. And I asked her, so where's town? And she <laughs> could not believe I was asking the question. And I, I will admit, you know, uh, I was naive a bit at the time or green. And uh, she said that she said to me, James, uh, you're in town. This is midtown. That's uptown. That's downtown. <laughs> and maybe you should consider going back home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember also, like, when I told my parents I was moving to New York, they were horrified. And my mother made, I mean, she begged me not to go out after eight um, <laughs> on the street to be sure I was home by eight o'clock uh, in the summer. I know, I know. Aww. It was, it was uh, and, and, you know, the, the worst thing about that was that I was sure I was home by eight o'clock for the first like week and a half I was there. And then I slowly began to understand like there were parts of the city that you could not be out in late at night. And there were other parts where you could only be out late at night. And it was, right. it was a very interesting wake up uh, for someone from Texas. It was a, it was a, it was stimuli on a massive scale. Okay, James, I want to ask a question. Did you love being an actor? Was it a passion I, for I you? Did, I I did love being an actor and I, I loved acting, but what I what I didn't like was working with other actors. That really <laughs> caused a lot of problems for me. And and actually as soon as I stopped being on stage with them and started working with them from the other side of the footlights, um, my appreciation for actors shot through the roof. But while I was actually performing them with them, it was it was problematic. 
you know, there were there were a lot of people in, in New York who wanted to be actors and not a lot of people who wanted to be writers or not as many people. And I was just drawn sort of to the idea of writing by the law of averages. I just had a much better chance of, of becoming a playwright than I did a working actor. I think you said to me that you you mentally as a writer place yourself as the character in the scene to see what it is you're looking at and feeling and how how you know how those things are affecting the character is that is that right you do you do you oh yeah i try to i do i try to imagine the moment as much as i can i remember i was i was trying to get this crime scene right in our second season of the closer and I was trying to imagine, like, this is, this is, this should be horrific in a way. This should be much more disturbing than it is. But I don't want it to be, you know, uh, over the top. What would make mm-hmm. it more what I want it to be? And suddenly I realized where they were, there would be a lot of flies. And the flies oh. would be, oh. like, really going at it and that was all we needed really it it was all we Mm. needed to make the scene right and it would have been there and so we did it i mean it it was a little complicated because we did bring in some flies and it was a little cold for flies in the morning when we were shooting and it's very hard by the way to say flies back to one Um, (laughs) yeah I was in New York and for 14 months I did three I did three plays in 14 months which was not bad but oh that's but, great but none of the plays ran very long and I had all this time and I was you know in Dallas I worked fairly constantly and in New York it was it was not as constant and I just was going crazy with all the time between jobs and I had gone to see Amadeus and I had I had been incredibly inspired by that play and it made me want to write a play and to see if I could write a play and to take up that challenge and so I had all this spare time I was working in a theater restaurant and we would have a big rush before uh curtain on Broadway every every night and then things would empty out and I would have a minute and I would go outside uh and sit at a table an empty table and just write because the restaurant would be empty for at least an hour and usually for two and I mean if there was a particularly bad show near us uh we would know because during the intermission we would be flooded (laughs) with people (laughs) <laughs> but for most of the, for most of our for most of the time I was there, uh, we didn't see a big crowd until 9:30 is when the was when the after theater crowd started to slowly file in. So I I would have a good hour and a half to work there, and then after I got home, I would work on. I remember I would write all night while Mary Tyler Moore was playing in the background and some other syndicated oh, wow. shows. Oh my and, gosh. And then uh, uh, I didn't have a typewriter, so I had to borrow a typewriter, uh, which was on the Upper East Side. 
and I I remember like I had three nights off a week and I would walk I was in a law office and I could only use it at night. So oh I would gosh. go I would walk across I would walk from forty uh, second and ninth to sixty third and fifth or somewhere in that area. I, I don't exactly remember where it was and I would work. I would I would type 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 and my typing was not great, which also meant that I got a chance to rewrite because I was constantly typing the wrong thing and having to start over. Uh, oh my god! And I would get maybe four pages before I had to clear out and get home. Uh, but that's how I I wrote my first play. You 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 end up with a play on Broadway that that, that cut chase, which was a, a play that I that I love. Um, uh, called Homefront, so I think it was called The War at Home originally. Is that right? It was called The War at Home Overseas. We premiered it in London, and mm-hmm. then it it actually went to a few other places before we got it to New York. And okay, yes, and we had to change the name to Homefront. We didn't actually have to change the name, but we did change the name to Homefront. Um, and uh, and then the movie is called The War at Home, uh, which is and did that crazy. Per- did that propel you into writing television? I mean, doing Time on Maple Drive is one of those epic uh, movies of the week that I think, yeah. well, definitely, you know, we all know it. I'll give you the a thumbnail version of it. I um, wrote a, a screenplay and I had it optioned and uh, I moved to Los Angeles and the screenplay was having a very hard time getting up and running. My agent put me up with the play for this story that Fox wanted to turn into a movie. It wasn't um, a story based on uh, reality, but it was a a story that they had been tossing around about a young high school guy who is gay, who attempts suicide to manipulate his family. And that was what was first pitched to me. And I turned it down because I didn't think, um, I, because so many people, young people in high school, especially who turned out to be gay were, you know, over 70% of teenage male suicides at that point were related to sexual identity issues. And I didn't feel like doing a story that where a boy was manipulative. So I turned it down and they were astonished that I would turn it down. And I got a call from, from the, the producer a little, I, I pitched them back the story that I eventually did. And uh, they called me and said, we pitched the idea to so-and-so and he liked the idea, which I was, I was dumbfounded that they would call me with that. And, and I just said, well, then problem solved. You should hire him <laughs> because I don't like the idea and I'm not writing that idea. I said, I don't even want to spend an hour and a half or two hours watching this boy, much less writing about him. I, I just don't have any interest in writing about him. And I I like the story I pitched you. And that is very close to what you wanted to do. And if you don't like that story, then you should go with the other guy. And then they ended up coming back to me. And all along the way, I was told the movie was never going to get made. 
And, and I was like, okay, well, I'll just do what I want to then. And if it's never going to get made, it'll be an interesting writing sample. And um, it was just one of those things where uh, mistakes kept getting made in a way that pushed the movie forward. <laughs> and, mm. and eventually people kept saying yes, who should not have said yes. And eventually it got made. And, and it you was got nominated for an Emmy. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I don't know how that happened either. I was in the kitchen. Uh, my, my, my mom and dad were visiting uh, and we were living in a duplex at that time in uh, uh, an unincorporated part of Hollywood. And I was uh, cleaning up the dinner from last night, which I left out because I didn't want my, my parents coming in and doing it. And my father had taken it upon himself to repair the vacuum cleaner in the living room. And he had turned on the TV and was watching uh, the Today Show. And he called me and said, James, you've been nominated for an Emmy or your movie was nominated for an Emmy because for oh, some reason wow. the writing Emmys were withheld for a day. And uh, I, I was stunned. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. It just never occurred to me that that would happen. And when I was nominated, um, I remember my, my <laughs> I called my sister to tell her. I called my sister and said, hey, I've been nominated for an Emmy for doing time on Maple Drive. And she said, oh, my gosh, who, who else is nominated? And I said, well, uh, Neil Simon. And she said, Neil Simon? Lost in Yonkers? <laughs> and I said, yes. And, and Robert Bolt. And she said, Robert Bolt, a man for all seasons, Lawrence of Arabia. Said, well, yes, let me finish. And I, I, I got to Falsey and Brand and she said, she just burst out laughing. And she goes, well, it's an honor just to be included. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a little break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to, we're going to dive into, um, uh, the current state that we're all in right now. And, uh, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about the closer and major crime. So please uh, check, uh, check back in with us. We'll be right back with James Duff. Okay, we're back. And I, we were just on the break talking about I could just sit here and listen to your stories all day. And well, God you, knows Sarah. we have so the time. Um, so... Johnny and I were talking about when we were discussing you and your history, we started talking about there was an HBO documentary on Jimmy Breslin. And for those of you who don't know who Jimmy Breslin is, shame on you. Uh, but this <laughs> HBO documentary was uh, absolutely, Johnny had sent me the clip from it of you and I, it was truly one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking moments I've watched in a long time. So I wanted to, to kind of talk about um, that time in your life. And the fact, can we just talk about the fact that Jimmy Breslin was telling you you needed to be a writer? I, I, I mean, that's magnificent. But well, let, we me, let, me, let me put some of that in context. So, so Jimmy was married to Ronnie Ronnie uh, uh, Eldridge, and she was connected politically to um, a club. I mean, she wasn't a member of the club, but she she knew a lot of people at the club, the Village Independent Democrats. 
And when the HIV epidemic took off, she had a very good friend inside that club, Alan Roscoff, who was connected to the HIV community and the HIV protests that were going on and all that sort of stuff. And Jimmy had been, um, well, he was always sort of on the wrong side of his editors because he was, he, he wrote about the underdog and the person who, who did not have power and the people who were in trouble because of poverty or because of neglect or because of healthcare issues. And so his, his editors were trying to get him away from writing about crime and sometimes taking the criminal side (laughs) and, Mm. and writing about something else. And he chose to write about HIV and he was doing it honestly and truthfully when a lot of people were not talking about it at all. And so Ronnie uh, contacted Alan and Alan contacted me because my partner uh, had been a member of VID and he came down with HIV and uh, Jimmy wanted to interview someone with the disease. And so I arranged for that to happen. And when he came to do David's um, interview, I asked him not to mention my name and not to write about me by name because I was worried about what the impact would be on my career at that time. And I needed to make some money because we had no money. We were, I mean, it, it was unbelievably, we were, we, we were just devastated financially as well as emotionally and all that. And so Jimmy agreed and he ended up writing two columns about David. And after uh, David died and I was feeling really, I, I don't know. I, 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 the, the, the whole thing about saying, please don't mention my name really aided me. After David died, I I felt small. I felt cowardly. And Jimmy knew this. Um, and he got, he won the Pulitzer Prize for writing these stories. And, you know, I, I, uh, I was proud of him because he, he really did tell a story that wasn't being told. And he needed to highlight that these people were humans. And he did that. Not not gay people dying, but humans dying and dying because they were human, not because of their sexual orientation. Mm. And and he was, you know, he was extraordinary in an extraordinary writer. So the stories were extraordinary. Anyway, he got a show on ABC uh, following Nightline called Breslin's People. And he called me up and he said, James, I want the first segment of my first show to be about HIV. And I want you, uh, if, if you could tell me someone who not had HIV, but someone who lost someone to HIV, someone who is living in grief, someone who is living in sorrow because the person they loved died. And of course he was, he went on and he was describing me, you know, and, and I was so guilty 
for <laughs> for saying please don't use my name that i i said why don't i'll i'll do the interview even though i was like not out to my greater family even though i was you know i was not out in public or anything like that i i was I was so devastated by what had happened to David. And also, I didn't really feel like I had that much longer to live myself at the time. And I thought, well, this is something I can do. And I I can at least make a stab at letting people know what it's like. And maybe that will make a difference. And so he he we did this interview. And he got nominated for an Emmy. <laughs> and I had to I had to move away in order to get work. It was, wow. it was really crazy. I, I couldn't, you know, like I, I was persona non grata and, and, you know, it, everybody's like, oh, New York is so liberal and New York is such a uh, fantastic place for social stuff. And it, you know, it really wasn't at the time we were served on paper plates and, and uh, plastic silverware and, G.W. Bailey, who I did, uh, you know, who we did uh, The Closer and Major Crimes with together, he had been my teacher in high school, and um, he'd been an acting coach in high school, and he'd come to see me in New York, and he reminded me of this. I had completely forgotten. Uh, He came to visit with me and David, and I didn't know if David was going to feel like it afterwards so i didn't say anything but when gw was going down the stairs i ran after him and said hey david says it's okay if you'd like to have dinner would you like to go and grab a bite to eat somewhere and he said well sure i'll go anywhere you want and i said well we can't go anywhere we want we're only allowed in three restaurants here and that was the truth and we were in the village oh my god. in the west village oh my god and oh my god and we would, I mean, because David had Kaposi's on his face, there were places they just said it'd be better if he didn't eat here. And that happened like, you know, several times. And we just located the three places that we could go and eat. And one of them was the Dew Drop Inn, which isn't there anymore, but was, uh, it, it had like Texas style food and stuff like that. In, uh, and so we went there. That's where we went to eat. Mm. And, James. and uh, yeah, it was a very different time, very different. And so, it reminds me a little bit of the time we're going through because yes. there were lots of, I, I've been surprised by the number of people who have balked at changing their behavior, especially since that's how the AIDS crisis exploded. We, we, it was a struggle to get people to change their behavior. And we knew that it was a behavioral, a, a behavioral um, uh, d- disease. It was passed through, through behaviors that could be changed, like, you know, the, the intimacy issues of sex and how to protect yourself during sex. And there were people who just were like, no, we don't want to do that. And it was, it was a massive problem in the beginning, getting people to understand that you couldn't have sex the way you'd always had sex. You needed to stop and change that. And, you know, here we are again in, in uh, 2020 and we're having those same issues, trying to get people to change their behavior and accept that 
this change needs to be in place in order to protect ourselves from mm-hmm. a virus. I just want to know, because, you know, I lived that period as well and lost my partner in, when I was in my 20s. Um, and actually, a lot of this has brought back a lot of trauma for me, just watching the news, to be honest. Um, uh, but the lack of leadership that Reagan uh, didn't display uh, reminds me of, of this denial that's been going on for months here. I mean, do you see a parallel in terms of that? Well, there there is, unfortunately I do, but, but the parallel is only in the consequences. Reagan would not talk about it and neither would Nancy Reagan. They, 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 I, I don't think he spoke about it until his second term. And That's right. In, late, in 85, late, I think. Yeah. Late. It, and, and it was too late then for him to actually sort of make a big change in what was going on, but he didn't pursue a change. He was like, well, this will, this will die out. This is not a big problem. It's, it's located in a in small communities and listen you know there are people who adore ronald reagan and i don't want to um you know it's 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 crazy to spend a lot of time speaking ill of the dead and i'm sure he did some great things um i i he was not my idol by any stretch of the imagination but but he did not do the right things uh by the HIV crisis. And Donald Trump has not done a lot of the right things in the COVID crisis. And, and I, I think it's, uh, there is a little bit of the same energy involved in that. Uh, you know, the leave it alone energy of mm-hmm. the libertarian way of thinking of things. And yet there are some things that only government can do and only government can pull off. And like mass testing. Where are the tests? Why are they holding yes. tests back? Yes. Right. And, you know, this was a problem in the HIV crisis, too. We did not right. have tests early on. And nobody knew who had it and who didn't. And also there were false negatives in the in the test. People would go in, especially with the Western Bloc test, and they would get a, a negative response. And they would think, they, oh, well, well, I don't have to worry. And then they would come down with the disease. And and also when you were testing people, getting a list of people with whom they had been intimate with was sometimes very difficult. And here we have the same issue. And it's worse, I think, with COVID because we we actually need the tests in order to put people back to work. We need right. to know we need to know where it is and who has it and who's spreading it. So we can open up the country again, and we—that's going to require mass testing. And I, I'm afraid that the organization necessary to pull that off requires also a form of leadership that is foreign to President Trump. I don't know how we get back to work with this president. Well, when we come back from the break, you as I. Uh, prolific showrunner for 13 years. I, I, I want to ask you uh, exactly about that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, or we haven't talked about Major Crimes or the Closer yet, so we're going to talk about that. So uh, a little break and we'll be back with James Duff. And we're back with James Duff. Um, 
James, you were, uh, as we all know, as I know very well, because I was in both shows, um, a showrunner, creator of Major Crimes and The Closer. And you, you ran a crew of, what, 350 people or something like that. Wow. If you were a showrunner now, <laughs> what, what would be your... Uh, how how would you get your show back up in in these conditions? What 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 would be the things you would need to see before going putting people back in danger? Well, I your number one job as a supervisor, and a lot of people don't know this, but it's not to be creative, and it's not to be clever, and it's not to be orderly. It is to be sure that the people who work for you are safe. That is your number one job. If you can't make people safe, then their creativity is diminished and their spirit is diminished and their morale is diminished. They must be safe. And normally when we say that, we're saying safe from the the corrections of overly uh, controlling people or safe from uh, sexual predators or safe from bullying and all that sort of stuff. But now we would have to include COVID. And the way forward is testing. You you can't start production again until you've tested everybody and you know that they are either clear of the virus or they've already had the virus and they are no longer infectious. And it can't just be the 350 people that you're working with on a regular basis, it needs to also be all their vendors and all the people they associate with. And, right. you know, it's, it is a incredibly difficult problem, but it is not insurmountable. It just needs a lot of testing. And until we can get that testing, we can't, we can't guarantee people's safety. And right. I, I don't think any job, is worth risking your life. On to a little bit happier topic and, and memories. Um, you, you found this long success with this story of the closer and major crimes. Uh, were you in your late 40s, 50s? Like, it wasn't like you were a kid when this huge success came your way. Do you think that the fact that you were a mature person, human at that point, made you decide to do things other showrunners don't do, like stay with the show for 13 years. What, what, was, what was that time like for you, creatively and emotionally and life-wise? Well, for sure, I had worked really hard to get a series on the air. And The Closer was my second series I'd gotten on the air. The first was The DA, which you also did. And I did all your shows. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and I... I loved the experience so much of putting that show together and getting it on the air. And I had worked so hard to get a show like this going that I didn't want to leave. I loved the people I was working with. I loved the, my, my partner, Mike Robin was, was an amazing person to work with. My, my uh, creative partner, uh, Kira Sedgwick on stage, she was an amazing person to work with. The actors were amazing. The crew was amazing, and there was no reason to leave. I I wanted to, and I wanted to be sure that I gave the experience everything I had. I wanted to be sure I had left nothing on the table. I loved 
writing about the justice system. And that was an inc- that was just a discovery because most of my life I'd written about families. But the justice system right. turned out to be an extremely interesting topic. And it still is. It fascinates me. And because the justice system is not really visible except through the people who perform its duties. I mean, if you're talking about the justice system, you can't grab it. You can't hug it. You can't see it from space. It is a concept, a construct that we all have to agree on in order for it to work. And mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been tested severely during the last four years. Uh, and oh, yeah. it, it is under awful pressures, but it's still functioning. Uh, maybe not as ideally as we would like it to, but it's, it, the justice system remains one of the great, great um, achievements of our species. I want to go back to one thing you said, James, where you were talking about leadership. Do you think that in the 13 years, um, do you think from year one, you became, every year you became a better leader? I, I, I will say that I was trying to be a good leader starting in year one. And, and my, my, mine and Mike's uh, theory was it did not, it could not just be a good place for us to work. It needed to be a good place for everyone to work. And, but I, I do think I got better at the job as time went on because I just became more experienced. And also I, I got to know the people I was working with very well. We became right. more and more like a family and less and less like just a group of professionals showing up every day. And that made a big difference too. The better you know people, the better you you can lead. And also there were times I needed to be led and you needed to know like which of these people is good at leading me through this particular issue. I wanted to uh, ask you, where do you think we are politically? I know it's hard to read tea leaves in the middle of a crisis, but um, is this event going to propel the Democratic candidate, which I assume will be Biden, uh, into the presidency, or, or is that not a foregone conclusion in your opinion? Well, it's not a foregone conclusion, unfortunately. And I, I think it's time that a lot of people who are looking at our political process face up to some facts. And they are sad facts. They are difficult facts. They're is an incredibly large segment of the American population that does not believe in science and does not believe in facts and does not care about expert opinions or doesn't believe experience has um, anything to say about what we need to do. And the coronavirus highlights that. I mean, yeah. social distancing is, is, should not be a political issue, and yet it is. Social distancing is the way to avoid getting infection and the, the way to avoid infecting other people. It's not a political point of view. It is a healthcare point of view, and the doctors tell us this. And, 
And yet we see like in Atlanta, we see some clear delineation between Democrats and Republicans, which is ridiculous. The virus cannot distinguish between your political views and my political views. And it doesn't know who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. And politicizing this virus has been a terrible idea. And yet that's what, that's how it began. And we're having a very hard time walking back from it. And it's, it's because, it's because we have no respect anymore for science. We have no respect anymore for experience. And I'm shocked by this. It's, but I should not be so surprised actually, because that's how climate change has remained a problem and continues to be a problem. And it's it's how a woman's right to choose can be constantly up for reexamination because science doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. And the number of times I've heard people say, you know, when I point out the president is not telling the truth or the president is flat out lying, when I when you point that out and you hear back, well, everybody lies. It's shocking. Mm. Uh, And. And the idea that fake news has taken on, like, I, I don't even know what to say about that. It's not fake news. If you had not been paying attention to the New York Times during this crisis or the Washington Post or CBS or NBC News or uh, ABC News or CNN or many of these other outlets, you would be completely taken off guard by the severity of this crisis. You know, right. it is it is a terrible, terrible crisis, and a a uh, a wake up call for a lot of people. He, he yeah. is responsible for how this virus spread, and for the lack of tests, and for the lack of respirators. He's responsible for these things. He could have revved up production on respirators and got them ready because he knew it was coming. Right and. Or he could have known he he might have known it was coming if his son-in-law hadn't told him that the media was making a big thing about the COVID virus because they wanted to defeat him in the fall. And right. apparently he bought that, and that was why we were so late to the party here. You know, I I was having a discussion with someone who I I I adore and I care about about COVID and how it spread, and it's like. Well, you're saying like Trump is just evil and that he didn't care and that he was utterly neglectful and that he didn't want this to affect his reelection chances. So that's why he did it. I said, yes, that's what I'm saying. Me too. <laughs> and the facts, the facts support that. You know, in Florida, you have uh, the mini Trump, who's governor there, who did not shut down his state until this morning because Trump didn't tell him to. Yep. What? 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 You know, it's what about the doctors? Do you not think doctors have a good idea about how this disease spreads? Or do you think politicians know how the disease spreads? I think they're becoming acquainted with the ins and outs of COVID-19 and how it moves around the country. But, you know, it's the doctors who should be in charge. And instead, Trump is there every afternoon having a little mini rally and attacking the mm-hmm. media and the press 
for the sake of his base and is acting like he's in charge and that he has tests everywhere when that's demonstrably not true. Well, this has been uh, a wonderful conversation with you. I hope we get to talk to you more in the coming months as the election rolls out. I'm I'm still hopeful we're going to have an election in November. <laughs> um, well, as you know, as you as you may or may not know, uh, the election is not uh, an elective. It is mandated by the Constitution. And the other aspect of that is the president's term is fixed. So if there is no election at the end of the president's term, he and the vice president leave office and then the order of succession would take over. And that would require that. Nancy Pelosi to be the president of the United States. And there's no way out of that. So there has to be an election. And unless okay. the Republicans just want to see Nancy Pelosi take over. I'm all for that. I'm okay. I'm okay I'd, with that. <laughs> I'd be, I'm all good I'd with be, that. I'd be fine Oh my that. God. Can we, let's end this on that fabulously upbeat note. Jesus, wouldn't yeah. that be wonderful? It Jim would be Stop, magnificent. I, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Um, what what a complete joy. And I, I just, I loved learning about you. And, and um, yeah, please come back. I, I would love to come back. And I, I love chatting with you guys. And I love what you're doing here with the Hollywood Caucus. And I hope it catches on and, and you get more and more people lined up to do this show. Thank you, James. Well, from, I love you. From your mouth to God's ears. Um, <laughs> all right. Thank you, James. And we'll, we'll talk right. to you soon. Thank you, Bye. guys. I'll talk Bye. to you later. Bye. Bye. And we're back. <laughs> He's smart. Now, He's so smart. And he... God, those stories, you know, you really do. You you think about what he went through, what what we all, but especially you guys, went through yep. with the AIDS epidemic. And, and, and to compare it to what's happening now, it's, I kept thinking as he was talking, have we, have we grown as a country or as a humanity at all? I mean, I, I mean, I'd like to think we have. I mean, I think I, I think uh, there are segments of the population that are that are uh, following guidelines, and, and as proven by, uh, it seems like in certain areas, you know, the containment is happening. Um, but it is very uh, uh, traumatizing for people that lived through the '80s and '90s and that epidemic uh, to to see these images, you know, of people dying, of people being covered in plastic, and all that. So, yeah, yeah it, it is a uh, an interesting time. I have a question for you. We're going to play our little game now. Okay. Okay. You ready for yours? Um, yeah. It's not that hard. Tara, if you could play any role, it doesn't matter gender, age, race, what would it be? Uh, Donnarola in King Lear. Ooh. <laughs> that? King Lear is one yeah. of my absolute uh, King Lear I believe is is the greatest soap opera ever written. And I wow. think it it speaks to so much 
and I, I'm not a huge, I, I don't, uh, I don't profess to know a lot. Uh, I'm not a Shakespearean genius uh, by any means, but uh, when I read King Lear when I was younger, that, that role to me, I don't think it, it's all about evil. It, 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 it spoke to me because I went, she's not all evil. There are reasons that she is the way she is. So anyway, I'm not going to go on. That was, that was my answer. Gone Rowling and King Lear. I love it. I love okay. it. Okay. All right. So my question to you would be, if you had to choose one cause to dedicate your life to, just one, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. One cause That's my it. life to. I, I can't pick. I think it would be in this uh, big umbrella, um, but I think it would be human rights because I think human rights, there, there are so many things that fall under that umbrella that would be able to sort of span across the world in terms of, you know, Human rights are different in every country, you know, as a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I would say human rights, because I think if you create a world where people um, can live without oppression, the, the the ripple effect of that would then be those people and everyone else would behave well towards the planet, towards animals, towards each other. You know what I mean? I think it, 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 has, a, um, it has a ripple effect the idea of treating someone with respect, you know? So that would be it. Well, I am going to treat you with respect because I absolutely adore you. And, I love you too. Um, and I really, I, I can't wait until next week. This, is, this has been saving me and my, my state of mind to be able me to too. do these shows. And, me um, too. It's, it's been, I look forward to the research and our guests, editing yep. the cuts, all of it. It's been a, a joy, and I, I am loving um, how our our listeners are responding with such yeah. pleasure at the content. You know, that's that's very important to be giving the world something back in in the time where there seems to be a paralysis. So yeah, um, and speaking you know, we'll be... of which, wait, speaking yes. of which, we love yes. to remind people every week to yeah. uh, subscribe and to rate and review us. I will see you next Tuesday. Jesus, that joke is never going to get old, is it, Johnny? Not really. I think it's kind of great. Oh, God. Okay. Love you. Bye. Love, everyone. Bye. Bye.